What is happening with the Nets? Is there a way for them to turn the season around? What will happen to the trade deadline? What is the future and the short term of this team? Here with Eric Slater of Clutch Points and Believe in Nets podcast. We're going to get into it all, but first, the theme music. You are Locked On Nets, your daily Brooklyn Nets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. All right, welcome back to the Locked On Nets podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. It's your team, the Brooklyn Nets, every single day. I am Doug Nori, owner-operator, DFSR.com. If you need projections for FanDuel or DraftKings, head on over to DFSR.com. Got you covered there every single night. No Adam Armbrecht on the podcast today. Massive upgrade here, talking with Eric Slater of Clutch Points of the Believe in Nets podcast, here to break down what is happening in this Nets season there's any hope around the corner what's going to come in the short term what's going to come in the long term eric how's it going brother it's going well man appreciate you for having me on really appreciate the work you guys do i don't know if you say massive upgrade you guys you guys do a pretty good job over massive. here but always always good to talk some nuts ball just to be clear only a massive upgrade on adam it's a it's a <laughs> it's a new it's a neutral move if, if, if we swap adam around it's a neutral move um but uh for adam not to be here for you to be here massive massive upgrade i, mean, I know he always appreciates stuff like that okay nets are in paris here we are but we are still stateside talking about the team it's been a very up and down season and that is a massive massive understatement it feels like <laughs> around where this team started uh, where they sort of were in the in the middle section of the season so far and where they are now. Let's start just like state of the team. You're with the team a lot. You know, you're covering the team every single day. What do you feel like is the general feeling around this team right now? We'll get into the nitty gritty around like different players, uh, Jacques Vaughn, all this other stuff. But like if you sort of had to summarize your feelings about the state of the Nets as they left to go to Europe, into this Paris game, like where would you put like sort of the general feeling around the team right now? I say they're a team that's just struggling to find consistency. I mean, when you look at the grand big picture of where they're at, I would say that they're underperforming, although I would say not by as big amount as some people think. And I think that the reason that it may seem that way is, you know, when they've been hot, they were hot. They won, what was it? Six or seven or seven of eight. And then since then they've lost what 12 of their last 16. So I feel like the lack of consistency makes it feel like the team is performing a lot lower than they are. I do think that they're underperforming, but I do think if you came into this season, the record of where they're at there, it's, it's not too far off from where you could have expected them to be. But I do think that during this recent stretch that they're performing well below expectations. And I think that all the, the players on the team, the coaches recognize it, recognize the lack of consistency. And I think that they really felt coming into this season were confident that they could be performing at a level higher than what they are right now and really challenge and push into that playoff picture. So I don't think it's a team that's hopeless. I do, you know, I'm around the guys in the locker room and it's still a team that like the mood isn't just completely like shocked by these recent struggles, but they're a team that I think holds themselves to a higher standard than where they're at right now and believe that they should be performing higher than they are. Because if you remember, they have a lot of guys on this team that have played a lot of winning basketball, you know, for other organizations, obviously, but they're not all used to this extent of struggles. So I do think they're, you know, they're a group that's not, you know, bereft of hope right now, but they're a group that recognizes that they're not performing where they should be. 
Yeah, it's a good point. Like typically the way people are at really sports is a good example. That's the way you feel is sort of like expectation over reality, right? So if the expectation is super low and you're 16 and 21, you're like, oh my God, you're doing, you know, might as well just run a parade <laughs> down Flatbush Ave. But if you are, you know, over 500 or if you have aspirations of the playoffs and now you find yourself in the same state, it can feel like the sky is falling. So I think it's a good, it's good for you the way you phrased it there to like kind of say like, it's probably not as bleak as it seems. And sometimes evaluating teams at their lowest points is not fair. It's just like evaluating teams at their highest points is not fair. Right. And the Nets, because the Nets right now, if you look at their their projected win total, they're right around a little north of 35. They came into the season right around 36 and a half, 37 and a half. So they're not off too far with where the preseason expectation was. It was just that that early season maybe said, like, do you feel like that? Like the early season? Yeah. Like, yeah, was that like I, a was that like a blip on the rate? Was that like sort of like that was that was more noise than signal? Like how they performed early. I I wouldn't say that. I would say that you know early in the season. I think even through those first few weeks, like if you look at the opening games of the year against Cleveland, against Dallas, against some of those other teams, they lost nail biters where you saw some of the concerns that people had about the team entering the year kind of rear its head, but. They were performing and they were competing on a night in, night out basis. And they were competitive with teams. And they really, for the most part, early on, took care of the teams that you would expect them to. So I think that that's the biggest you know, shift over these last 16 games. And I'm by no means trying to say that these last 16 games haven't been concerning. They absolutely have. When you're losing to teams like you know the Wizards, like the Trailblazers, when you're getting blown out by other good teams, like they're performing under a level of where they should be right now. And honestly, in my opinion, a lot of that falls on the defensive end because this is a team that came into the year with high defensive expectations. And while I think some of those may have been overblown based on some of the personnel that we're going to be playing, I do think that they are way underperforming on that end. And honestly, the effort on that end has been what is most concerning to me over these last 16 games, because in order to just have a high floor and be a team that we thought that maybe they could be, you have to be much better on the defensive end than what they have been right now. I mean, over these last 16 games are 27th in defensive rating. I don't think their personnel is as good as some people made it out to be entering the year, but they're much, much better than 26th over 27th over the last 16 games and 24th for the season. So really they have to improve on that end if they hope to have the consistency that they need to kind of meet some of the expectations they had entering the year. I, I want to talk about Jock Vaughn. So I want to like avoid this Vaughn part for one second with this next question, if this is even possible. But around when it comes to the defense, like you said right there, do you think it's more a by? Uh, let's just get let's just assume that like the defensive players are what they are so like forget about the expectation just like these are the guys this is what it is where they rank right now would you say having watched them every game and talked to everybody about this would you say the problems are more effort or more scheme like do you think or or and you're and you're fine to hedge your bets here and just say they're both but uh, like where like because uh, i feel like that is a an, a source of debate and consternation around the fan base here about like what is the bigger problem is it like that the players don't care or is it the scheme just stinks or is it like some combo? I, I would lean more towards the players. I don't think that the scheme is maximizing the, you know, some of the skill sets that the guys have, but I, you know, I wrote an article recently. The biggest problem that the Nets have had over these last 16 games is that they can't defend the three point line at all. And that has coincided with them not being able to shoot the ball well, like they were earlier in the season. So 
the defensive strategy of kind of being more in the drop coverage as opposed to switching, kind of trying to funnel some teams into taking above the break threes, being in position to rebound under the basket. Earlier in the year, it was working great. Nobody was complaining because opponents were missing and the Nets were shooting at literally the best three-point percentage in the NBA. So they were gaining a huge advantage there you know, every night. And over these last 16 games, I just wrote an article about it. Opponents are making the shots. But I went through, actually, I think it was two days ago, and I looked at nearly every three opponents had made over these last 16 games. And while there's a lot of them where I think that the coverage is leaving a lot to desired in terms of really packing in the paint and protecting it and leaving guys open on the perimeter. There's just as, you know, as many threes where it's guys, you know, being late in transition, the transition defense is just horrendous. So that you're giving up the sixth most fast break points in the NBA. And obviously some of that is a product of them not being good offensively. So opponents are having a lot of opportunities to run, but there's transition. Then there's a lot where, you know, defenders are just falling asleep, navigating off ball screens or relocations. Guys are just getting to spots where they're open, where they shouldn't be. And that has nothing to do with scheme. That's really just a product of focus and being locked in, not falling asleep off the ball. And then the third thing is the Nets just have some limitations defending at the point of attack right now. With Ben Simmons' sideline, you know, when you have Spencer Dinwiddie and Cam Thomas out there defending at the point of attack, there's only so much that a coach can do if those guys aren't going to be able to hold their own whatsoever in their individual matchups. And Cam Thomas is a guy that obviously a lot of fans feel very passionately about and they want him out there. But if you're going to complain about the defense, if you look at the film over these last 16 games, Cam Thomas has been – not good defensively. Neither has Spencer Dimwin. And I think that's why you saw in the last game, the Nets really just trying to find something that works going to Dennis Smith Jr. But even when they go to Dennis Smith Jr. down the stretch of that Trailblazers game, they're doubling on the ball. Anthony Simons is getting whatever he wants. So there's limitations of the scheme. I do think that it's a little bit soft and it's a little bit letting defend, letting, letting offenses come to you as opposed to attacking them. But can you really attack that much when you have that, those limitations defending at the point of attack? So that's really kind of how I would summarize that. Yeah, that's all great points. And like, you know, we've talked about this for, for a while too, about like those, those Dinwiddie, I mean, and, and God forbid the Dinwiddie plus Thomas pairings, my goodness, I, like the defense on those. Like once you get them both. Through, right? yeah, I've, I've I know, been surprised. I, I'm, I'll, I'll never I understand mean, it because like, you can't look at a single number that shows that like yeah. there's anything there with that. It's been a total train wreck. All right, we got more to talk about here. Have to get in to everyone's other favorite topic of conversation, which is Jock Vaughn. We'll get into that here in a second. First, going to tell you about our friends over at Prize Picks. Look, Prize Picks is daily fantasy made so easy. Prize Picks just took all the best parts of fantasy, removed the more difficult and annoying parts, and made really the basically the best product out there when it comes to daily fantasy. All you're doing on Prize Picks is you're going more or less on the Prize Picks projections, and that's just the numbers they're putting up there for NBA. It's easy. It's like points, rebounds, assists, blocks, steals. For NFL, you're going player uh, touchdowns, rushing yards, receiving yards, all the different kind of combinations you can uh, pile together just uh, players from NBA and NFL. So you get your five players. You can win up to 25 times your money as well. You can put the contest uh, entries in in just a couple of minutes. Very, very easy over on Prize Picks. All you do is go to prizepicks.com slash locked on NBA. Use the code locked on NBA for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com slash locked on NBA. Use the code locked on NBA. First deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks is daily fantasy sports made easy. All right, old friend, good friend, Jock Vaughn. Let's talk Vaughn here because obviously there's been, you know, you mentioned Cam Thomas as like sort of like I would call, call fan sticking points, right? <laughs> Things that we get hyper-focused on. And once you see something as a fan, 
I think this probably goes to all sports. You cannot unsee it, whether it's true or not. <laughs> right. So like it, it no longer matters whether there's reality behind it. Once you see something, uh, there's like a fixation. Now, I'm not saying that this shouldn't be the case here with Vaughn, but obviously Jacques Vaughn, whenever a team is underperforming, you have to look at the coach, right? Like I know you mentioned the players and the effort thing, and I think that's all really fair. And so actually, frankly, something you don't hear too often from people. But when it comes to Vaughn, there's, you know, you can't look at a, at a losing streak and not sort of look at the coach. Let's just high level thoughts on Vaughn and job security. We'll get, I want to get to the player side of this here in a second with like their, some of their quotes and reactions, but where do you see like Vaughn's job security right now through this swoon? Like, do you think it's ultra safe, tenuous? I don't know. I don't want to put the words in your mouth. Like, where do you see Vaughn right now? Like in terms of the job? Well, you know, you asked me about scheme and players and I said that you know, a lot of it lies on the players and their effort, but who's responsible for getting the players to perform at their max effort and perform to their capabilities. That's the head coach. So I'm by no means absolving Jock Vaughn of that responsibility because at the end of the day, if guys are falling asleep, navigating off ball screens and things along those natures, that's the coach's responsibility to get them to perform and be locked in and be at that position. Now you can argue how much of it is on the coaches and how much of it is on the players. And I think that that's fair. You can also say that when players have glaring limitations, it makes it more difficult for a head coach, but it's still his job to try to cover those up to the best of his ability. When it comes to job security, I think that the Nets would have to go on a these struggles, you know, these they're what, four and twelve or their last sixteen. These would really have to extend, I think, for an, another extended period for Jock's job to be in serious jeopardy. I'm not reporting that with any inside information. I'm just saying my opinion. And I think that. You know, this is a season where the Nets are really trying to see what they have. I've been calling it somewhat of an audition period in terms of the Nets wanting to find players. You know, they have all these guys. A lot of them are, you know, veterans or approaching veteran status. And when they try to make that leap back into contention, they're trying to determine this year which ones do they want to have here for the long run. And I think that that extends to Jock Vaughn. I think, you know, this is a guy that, while I think they don't want to fire him and they don't want to continue this coaching carousel, I do think that he's being evaluated as everybody else is, you know, as is the case every season, but particularly in a year where you're trying to determine how you're going to pivot into that next you know, era. So I think that early in the year, I think a lot of people, you know, would have thought Jock Mom was doing a very good job. I think things have flipped on their head over these last 16 games. You can argue whether that's, you know, opponent shooting luck, whether that's a product of scheme, whether that's a product of roster limitations, whatever. But the bottom line is this team is underperforming where they are expected to. If that is the case for another extended period, I do think that the Nets can be evaluating things heading into, you know, the years coming into the pivoting into the new era. And it's funny too, because I think like, you know, I'm not really, I'm really never one to call for jobs. I, that's just, I don't like it. It feels weird to me. Um, and so I, I don't do it. And maybe I, don't, I know there's people out there that get frustrated with that from us as a podcast, because, but I'm just, we're just not going to do it. That being said, I think that like, there is really fair criticism here around scheme around the effort. And I think you make a great point. Like if, if, if you can't get the players to play with max effort, especially when the, like the, the writing is on the wall with, with in terms of the standings and all this other stuff. Like that is a major problem. I also think that if you were to relieve Jacques Vaughn of, their, of his duties, you would have a lot of the same problems, <laughs> right? Like you would like, I don't think that would elite. Is that, is that a fair criticism here? Or like that yeah. you would, you'd be left with a roster that doesn't have tons of high end talent. Like, you know, you would, there's other organizational issues here beyond Vaughn. That's not absolving Vaughn. I'm just saying yeah. that like, you'd be in a, for a harsh reality that I don't think that would change every, all that much. There's, there's a lot of harsh realities with this team that, you know, I, 
I follow Nets Twitter and I see what fans post and fans seem to think that, you know, everything is always greener. Like fans are frustrated with Cam Thomas not playing point guard and Spencer Dinwiddie being in there. And I look at the numbers and I look at the games and I'm like, if you throw, you know, Cam Thomas out there on an island, maybe it's good for his development. And that's another conversation. Things aren't going to look pretty in the short term if you're throwing him out there on an island at point guard. So, and the same thing extends to Jock Vaughn, where I think that there's fair criticisms of, of him. I think that, you know, one that I've seen over this, you know, over the beginning of this season, and it, it was, it could have been expected entering the year because this is a team that doesn't have a star player. Everybody knows that depending on how you view a guy like Mikhail Bridges. But what they do have is a lot of capable players, a lot of guys who are good, you know, rotation players in the NBA. They're eight, nine, 10 deep in that regard. And the thing that has really struck me during this period is that there's really no established pecking order of this team of who is the go-to guy. You know, obviously Mikhail Bridges isn't a normally a high usage ball handler. He's not that type of player. Then you have guys like, you know, obviously Spencer Dinwiddie and Cam Thomas, Lonnie Walker off the bench early in the year. But it's like when you don't have that established pecking order and you're just shuffling guys in and out of roles, whether it be a Spencer Dinwiddie early in the year with when Ben Simmons was healthy to what he did, you know, in that midway point from Cam Thomas being on the bench, then back in leading the offense, getting hurt. Now he's taking a little bit more of a back seat. It's like when these roles are continuously changing, it's going to be develop. It's going to be tough to develop consistency. So while it's really difficult, I do think that that's something the Nets could look to improve. But I think that that improvement might be seen after the trade deadline when a lot of things are sorted out and there's a lot more clarity around this roster in the short to mid to long term. All right, great. You brought the trade deadline, which is where we were going to go next. We're going to do that here in one second. First, going to tell you about our friends over at Jace Medical. Look, we come to sports to escape some of the crazy realities of life, but we can just talk for a minute about preparing for real life. According to the FDA, pharmacies are running out of antibiotics like amoxicillin right in the middle some of the worst flu season over a decade. It can be super scary, especially if you've been dealing with some of the sicknesses. Uh, you can't imagine a more helpless feeling than you or one of your family members got sick while supply chain issues kept them from life-saving medications they need. Thankfully, we're all going to be okay because there's Jace Medical. Jace Case is a pack of five different antibiotics to treat a long list of bacterial illnesses, including UTIs, respiratory infections, uh, skin infections, among others. This stuff can happen to any of us. Look, I've been down this road before where you just can't get what you need, especially when it comes to the kids. It's just, it's just too scary to think about take it off your brain space here with jace medical visit jacemedical.com complete uh your physician encounter will be reviewed by a board certified physician your medications will be dispensed by a licensed pharmacy fraction of the regular cost it's never been more important to prepare be prepared than today go to jacemedical.com use the offer code locked on to get twenty dollars off your order that's jacemedical.com offer code locked on twenty dollars off your order jacemedical.com all right, trade deadline. Um, we are coming up on it here less than a month away. February 8th is the trade deadline. Nets stand in um, a very interesting position in terms of sort of like the pieces they have, how they might be viewed uh, across the league, and sort of like what their ultimate goals are, which uh, for me leave me generally confused <laughs> about like how they view how they view sort of the rest of the season. There is a scary um there's a scary sort of uh, outcome here that I wonder if you're, you'll touch on for <laughs> a scary, not real life scary, but like basketball scary. Where do you see the Nets going into the trade deadline? Like, or as a better question, maybe what do you think the team will look like after the trade deadline? Like, where do you like sort of, what do you think their goals are going in here? And do you see what kind of changes do you see possibly coming uh, as we roll into February 8th? 
as I said, I think that this year is being used as somewhat of an audition period, for lack of a better term, trying to determine which guys are going to be here for the long term when they do try to make a step towards being more competitive. I've seen some things you know, on that Twitter about people wanting the fire sale, people wanting the rebuild. I do not see that happening whatsoever, just based off of knowing how a lot of you know, how things operate and also seeing some of the moves that they're making, which are signaling a team that is trying to stay competitive at all costs, as opposed to maybe putting a premium on player development. So when, you know, you come into this trade deadline for me, I think it all centers around Brooklyn's veterans and impending free agents, the free agents, that's Nick Claxton, Spencer Dinwiddie, Royce O'Neal, even Lonnie Walker, the fourth. And then obviously Dorian Finney-Smith is a veteran who's a trade candidate as well. And when you look at those guys, it's, it could go in a lot of different directions. You know, Nick Claxton, this guy who's going to be unrestricted free agent. Obviously, we know that there's been a lot of talk about where his market could be at, whether the Nets want to pay him. They already have Cam Johnson and Mikhail Bridges under contract, you know, in the mid $20 million per year range. So if you have the hand and you're trying to sign Nick Claxton at a similar number, and then you're trying to, you know, bring in a star somewhere down the line, you know, it's not, it doesn't mean that they have to trade him. I wrote about this earlier in the year. They could you know, extend him, give him his contract as they did Cam Johnson and figure it out later. I think that's a real possibility. But with Claxton, if they are to extend him, that impacts their ability to retain those other guys that I talked about, Spencer Dimwitty, Royce O'Neal, Lonnie Walker, the fourth. So it really gets to a point where a lot of it is money involved. You know, I think that the Nets aren't trying to, you know, completely turn over their roster right now. I think that you know, they are trying to see where the trade value is for guys. And if the value is at where they think it's going to be a peak, they're going to try to capitalize. But I've wrote about this several times also. The Nets are going to try to stay out of the luxury tax next season. I would pretty much say they're going to because there's a CBA clause called the repeater tax that they want to reset. Basically, that is teams exceeding the luxury tax line three times in 40 years are taxed just at this insane um, you know, continuous rate based on how much further you go over their luxury tax line. And right now they have around 117 million committed to eight players for next season. The luxury tax is set for 172 million. So if you do the math there, that's I'm bad at math off the top of my head. That's like 54 million. Yeah. So you have guys, you have Claxton, you have Dinwiddie, you have O'Neill, you have Walker. It's going to be difficult to bring all of those guys back. So basically out of those four, you could throw Dorian Finney-Smith in that conversation. I do expect them to be active and some assortment of those guys to be moved, whether that's Claxton, allowing them to retain some other guys, whether that's Claxton and some guys, giving them some ability to bring in some other guys using some exceptions in the offseason. That's the question, but I do expect them to be active at the trade deadline. All right, I want to talk Ben Simmons, but I'm going to put you on the spot here real quick. I'm just going to say a guy you're going to say either still on the team or traded at the trade deadline. Ready? Dorian Finney-Smith. Still on the team, I'd say. Royce O'Neal. Still on the team. Oh, no. Spencer <laughs> Spencer Dinwiddie. <laughs> um, this is tough. Um, <clears throat> I I'd say still on the team, honestly. See, it's crazy. I was worried you were going to say that because this is the other. The I want to. I want. We're going to run out of time, and I want to talk about Simmons. But the um, this is my scary version. Was that right? Which is like you're you're still you're incentivized to keep winning at the cost of like being able to re, like actually just recoup and get worse in the short term, um, and uncomfortably worse, right? Like because you what you watch that pick go out to Houston and ends up being a good pick, and you're like, uh, you know, it looks brutal, but it's also feels possibly like throwing good money after bad. 
if yeah, you I, are. And just to clarify, I don't even – I think that's definitely playing a role. Like they do not want to go backwards. You know, I think they would incrementally if they were able to capitalize <laughs> on value for some of these guys. But, you know, it's tough to say. Honestly, like Claxon is a guy who I think teams would have interest in. I, I don't know if you were going to get to him, but he's a guy that I think is realistic to be moved – does this Dayron Sharp injury throw a wrench into that? You know, that's something yep. that you could talk about. It shouldn't. Well, I didn't throw him in there because I felt like you probably, I felt like, yeah, I, I was, he was part of that group, but then I felt like you've like kind of spelled out the two sides of it. But I'll say that right now, Claxton on the team or no? Yeah. Okay. Honestly, I, I think that there is a decent chance that they trade Claxton. Interesting. Um, okay. For all of these guys, like, I don't think that it's the necessarily them trying to stay competitive at all costs. Like everybody says that, you know, everybody thinks in a perfect world, like you're going to trade O'Neal, you're going to tra- get a, a good first round pick. You're going to trade Finney Smith. You're going to get two first round picks. The market might not be there. And if it's yeah. not, you know, they could be in a position where they want to extend some of these guys and maybe try to trade them at a later point where that value could be a little bit higher. Now you could argue they're getting older. Is that value going to be higher? Basically my point, you know, of what I said before is between Claxton, you know, Dimwitty, O'Neal, like out of these guys, it's going to be tough to retain all of them and just keep kicking the can down the road. So some assortment of those guys, I do expect to be on the mood move. And I do think it's really coming down to part trade value and then part also, how do they evaluate these guys during this season? And do they expect them to be in it for the long haul? So, you know, difficult exercise. You put me on the spot there, but no, I know, I know. I do, it's think, mostly- um, I do think that there is a realistic possibility that one of these, one or more of these guys could be on the move. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's a fair thing. I, I think I'm mostly with you. It's that I don't think it's realistic. I think the two things are unrealistic one for them all to get traded and two for them to have like this crazy market value where the nets are, you know, reaping multiple first round picks. I I'm, I, I agree with that part where it's like, or if they were first round picks, I was saying this the other day, like you have to tier these picks. Like if they were first round picks, they'd be so late in the first round because they're going to good teams and they're just not all first round picks. Aren't, uh, aren't created equally. Okay. Final yeah, thought here, Ben Simmons. Last thing. Like I, yeah, yeah. I do like, I'm not saying they can't get that for those guys. Like I do think a guy like Dorian Finney Smith will have a lot of yes. value. I think that Royce O'Neal should have good value. Also, I said no to Dimwitty because I'm not sure where his trade value is right now. And, you know, while yep. he's not playing well and he's he's a lightning rod for Nets fans, it seems like they a lot of people don't like him. But he's really the team's only point guard right now with Ben Simmons out. So if the value is not there for him and they're maybe looking at, you know, a couple second round picks for him and salary fillers, are they going to do that and then not have a point guard for the rest of the season? That's kind of where my thought process was there. So you know, I, and I said that early in the year with Ben Simmons out, Dimwitty is not really a guy that I saw them trading. And especially with him not really performing well as of late and that trade value probably not being where they thought it might be at. So, yeah. If you run the exercise of the, we did this on a couple of podcasts ago. If you run the exercise of possible Din, Dinwiddie landing spots, there just like weren't any, <laughs> right? Yeah, there weren't like you, you just run down the teams that could use him or that would be incentivized to trade for the kind of archetype that he is and they just didn't really exist. Okay. Final thoughts here, Ben Simmons. Um, in some ways it feels like he's not in the team anymore. And then there's other p- versions of it where he's coming back kind of soon. So <laughs> I don't know, where do you, I'm, I'm not even going to preface this with anything besides that. Where do you stand with ben, ben Simmons? Like right now in terms of timeline for returning slash ability to contribute over, honestly, I'll just throw this, the, these two things, the rest of the season, and next season because they still have them on their contract at 40 plus million. So starting with timeline, you know, they said that 
you know, we got a report from Brian Lewis. The Nets said pretty much, I tweeted about this yesterday and it was a little bit of a mini controversy, but the Nets said, I think it, today it's three weeks ago that he was, you know, beginning to see some strength improvement, that he was, you know, ramping up on-court work and that they were going to provide another update in approximately two weeks. Now they hadn't done that. And on Friday, Jock Vaughn was asked about it and gave an update. So not, or lack thereof an update, not really an update. He said he was on the court doing work. He said it was with coaches and stuff along those lines. You know, today we actually, there was actually some video posted on Twitter of Ben doing some stuff on court, but he's moving at like half speed in every drill. So it's kind of tough to tell. When it comes and there to was some shoot around stuff. There was some shoot around stuff with him that went up too, where he was like yeah. on the court. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just to clarify for the for people listening, like that was it was really it's not it wasn't like training stuff. It was like it was shoot around, right? I mean, yeah. we're talking about and the same thing. When it comes to timeline, literally anything you say right now is going to be speculative because we talked to Ben. I think it's a little bit less than three weeks ago now, and he literally said, "I don't have a timeline. I don't know with this type of injury. You just don't know." Now he's on the court doing some stuff. So that would lead you to believe that he's progressing, but it could be, you know, two, three weeks. It could be a month. It could be two months. Like we just don't know because this is an injury that obviously is very unpredictable. So that's when it comes to timeline, he seems to be trending in a direction, but we just don't know. He's ramping up. All the nets are always ramping up. That's, that's the term that we always <laughs> But um, when it comes to confidence and him being able to contribute, we're going on three years now of Ben, frankly, not playing basketball and not being available. And we literally just had last season him miss three extended stints in the first half of the year. Then he's forced out of the all-star break and he shut down for the entire second half of the season with a nerve impingement in his back. He spent about seven, eight months through going through what was called an intense rehab to try to get to a point where he was comfortable, you know, playing again, being at a good physical state. He said that he was, and then we got six games into this season and he went out with, while for some reason his agent said it's nothing similar and it's different. He went out with what is being called the same injury, although in a different spot. So if you have a player that got injured at last year's, you know, going into the all-star break was out for seven to eight months, really working hard at this rehab prospect process and saying that he felt great. And then you get six games into the year and he's out for two, three months with the same injury. I don't know how you could have any level of confidence that the guy is going to come back and be able to be on the floor and contributing for a extended period without injury. So that's kind of where I stand with Ben. You know, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, Brian Lewis, who does great work for the New York Post, did a piece right after. I think Ben got the diagnosis. He talked to doctors and they said, this is their words, that the type of injury that he has can be reoccurring and unpredictable. And then they said that the bulging disc that he had surgery on in the 2022 offseason, the microdiscectomy is the name of the procedure he had. The analogy that they use is that it's like patching up a, a hole in a tire and that they said word for word, it'll never be the same. So given all that, based on a three-year sample size of this, I don't know how you could expect anything else at this point. It's kind of a when Ben's on the floor, when he's playing for an extended period, you'll believe it. But right now, to expect that is kind of, you know, it's it's not logical based on what we've seen. I'll take it one step further. I'll never believe it. I, like, and I'm not trying to be harsh here, but it's just like, I I know you're you're doing a good job of sort of like you know, taking, your, your stance is realistic. I, I'll just take it one step further. I, at this point, based on the number of games he's played, and I'll go even back to Philly, where 
you know, he sat out the whole season and the pushback on that as well. It's not basketball related to me. It's all related. <laughs> like once you sit out, it all counts. It doesn't matter. It counted with Kyrie. It can't like it can't, you know, it counts when you sit out for any reason, because, because once you sit out for any reason, it means you can sit up for any reason. I, I think he's hurt right now, by the way. I, so it's not that I think this is like legit injury. I'm just saying it all factors in. And when you've played something like 20% of the games or less over the, you know, the available games over the last three years, you just can't like, I, I, I think it's just complete com, to me. It's completely cooked and um, it's all found money, even though it's incredibly yeah, that, expensive. That was, found money. that was the, that was pretty much the wording that I used. I wrote an article about this right after Ben got diagnosed or his agent, Bernie Lee came out and gave the prognosis of that nerve impingement because I thought I've said this, but I thought the reporting of the situation was so not strange because we've seen reporting of his injuries be weird, but you know, first it's, it's hip soreness, then it's a hip contusion. And then his agent comes out and says that it's a back impingement, a nerve impingement in his back. And I just said that while the injury that forced him out at last year's all-star break was a nerve impingement, the agent said that it's nothing similar to what Ben experienced last season. And this is a short-term thing and a day-to-day evaluation is what he said. We're two, two plus months in and he hasn't played. So you know, that's that's kind of where I'm at with it. And it's it's getting to a point where if he's, you know, if he's back on the floor, that's great. But like you said, it's all kind of gravy. And you the Nets, I wrote this was the focus of the article I wrote. He they can't be banking on him to oh. you know to plan anything around this. And it seems no. to some extent like they were entering the year, which is a little concerning. You know, they can't it can't be when Ben gets back, this defensive scheme is going to look better. Or when Ben gets back, the transition offense is going to be there and things are going to look better. We're going to be jacking up threes at the rate we want to. When Ben gets back this, it can't be that because Ben's never back. He's never on the court for an extended period. So to plan and expect for him to be that and plan things around him is literally insanity. It's expecting, you know, a different result when you're doing the same thing over and over again. So you know, Ben, if he comes back, that's great. It could be a bonus for the Nets, but the Nets team, coaches, fans, nobody should be planning and expecting things to all be fixed, you know, based on Ben getting back. Because as we've seen, history says that he's not going to be on the court for an extended period. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think like, you know, I'll, I think it's cooked. I think it's, I think it's over. Um, I think it's, you know, f- a couple game stretches here and there. And I think that's, I th- actually don't even think that's the expectation to me. It's just the reality. Maybe I'm being totally unfair, but I just think if you're looking at a probabilistically, like if you're Bayesian in this thing, like you just can't go any other way. You'd be insane. You'd be insane. If you, if you were super at, in any way, even on the right side of bullish, I, I just don't even know how you can do it. Okay. We're going to get Eric out of here. Much appreciated. Eric jumping in uh, for this extended talk on the Nets. Always great insider information. Bring in because Eric's covering the team every single day over there on clutch points over on believe in Nets podcast. Eric, thank you so much for coming on today. Appreciate it, man. Hope to talk to you soon. All right. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe over on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We get to the end of the podcast when Adam is not here. He always brings the quotes from the great American poets. No quote today. We'll just say Eric Slater over there, one of the great American poets. We'll be back again tomorrow talking more Brooklyn Nets basketball. Every day.